Hello and welcome to Peach Pod, a Georgia politics podcast. My name is Kyle Hayes and I'm your host. And I'm excited this week to have our two regular hosts back joining us. We've got a full house for you guys. Megan Payne, thanks for coming back on. Hey, it's great to be back. And Luke, uh, thanks for always for meeting me here once a week. It's good. Good to be with you. Um, So on this week's show... We are going to dive into three topics with y'all. Our first topic this week, we're going to talk about the issue of local immigration enforcement. Um, this is an issue that, you know, the, the big issue around immigration has been something that has been at the top of our politics for quite a while. It's something that I think Donald Trump almost single-handedly dragged to the forefront with his election. And um, it's an issue that I think is primarily thought of as a federal one. But we wanted to dive into this issue from a local perspective and take a look at how local governments cooperate with federal immigration enforcement in ways that they don't have to. And luckily for us, the Georgia Budget and Policy Institute recently put out a paper on this. So they actually get to carry some of the intellectual heft for us. Um, So I talked with Wesley Tharp. He's the research director at the Georgia Budget and Policy Institute about this issue. And we're going to share an interview about that with you guys. And then for our second topic this week, we're going to talk about election security in Georgia. Um, There's an ongoing debate within our politics about how secure our voting systems are in the state and in the wake of Russian interference in the 2016 election and new information coming out in the indictments surrounding investigations into that. Georgia has kind of emerged as a state that maybe uniquely doesn't have the the security that it needs to have in our elections. And then uh, for our third topic this week, we're going to close the loop on the Democratic runoffs that happened in the 6th District, in the 7th District, uh, the state school superintendent's race, that one just wrapped up. And we'll talk about a state superior court judge race uh, as well. Um, So we're just going to close the loop on those elections because our final Democrat versus Republican uh, matchups are all set and we're counting down the days to the fall. I think it's, what's it guys, did we say 98 days from now? I think so. Sounds right. On and that's on Tuesday when we're recording. You'll you'll hear us in a couple of days. Um, but let's start with this interview that I had with Wesley Tharp. Um, so I'm going to turn it over to that discussion. So the Georgia Budget and Policy Institute, a nonpartisan think tank in Atlanta, has a new paper out looking at the costs local governments pay to voluntarily enable the enforcement of federal immigration laws. We're now joined by Wesley Tharp, GBPI's research director, who's the author of the Institute's new paper. Wesley, thanks for joining the show. It's my pleasure to be on, Kyle. Um, So your paper dives into some of the things that local governments are required to do and others that are voluntary activities of local governments as it relates to them supporting the enforcement of federal immigration law. So could you just talk a little bit about what that distinction is between what local governments are required to do and what's voluntary? Sure, I'd be happy to. One of the reasons that we sought to kind of lift up that distinction in the report between what the mandatory requirements are versus what some of these voluntary hyper-enforcement options are, uh, is that 
One of the arguments you often hear in favor of these local enforcement programs are that jurisdictions are simply enforcing federal law. But there's actually you know, a significant difference between the things that they are required to do versus things that local officials are choosing to do and could potentially be done a different way. On the mandatory side, uh, I'd point to a couple things. One is that uh, essentially in any jail in the country, and so in any local jail in Georgia, uh, inmates who come in and are booked are having their fingerprints scanned and sent to uh, Immigration and Customs Enforcement, sent to ICE. Uh, that provides the federal government an opportunity through that agency uh, to sort of be on the lookout for, in some cases, violent criminals or other uh, people who have been uh, identified at any given time uh, by ICE, by the agency, as a priority for deportation. Um, another thing that's mandatory is that ICE uh, field agents, federal immigration enforcement agents, are you know allowed to to enter a jurisdiction, really kind of at their discretion at any time for any reason to uh, try to identify and apprehend what they view as priority targets at a given time. Uh, these are things like uh, workplace and neighborhood uh, raids, uh, picking up people who are who have been identified uh, for, as a deportation priority. Uh, and so local governments can't sort of throw up active, proactive obstacles to those field agents coming in and doing that. On the voluntary side, though, is really where things get interesting, and that's where our paper seeks to, to kind of dive into the details of what these choices are uh, costing Georgia city and county governments. There's two things in particular. Uh, one is complying with what are called immigration detainers. These are non-binding voluntary requests from ICE for local public safety officials for jails uh, to hold uh, to hold people in the jail for up to an additional 48 hours beyond the time they would have otherwise been released, uh, for example, by being bonded out or having their charges dropped. And then the second voluntary uh, policy choice is what's uh, referred to as a 287G agreement. These are these are agreements between a local government uh, and the federal government and with, excuse me, uh, agreement with ICE uh, to layer on an additional layer of heavy enforcement, uh, specifically by having local peace officers in the, in the county and city and county jails uh, trained to carry out the function of immigration agents uh, by things like searching federal databases, transporting uh, inmates who have been uh, roped up in the process uh, to to other locations, to um, to ICE facilities, and that sort of thing. And so, those are the two really voluntary components of uh, local immigration enforcement that we uh, take a take a deep dive on in the report. And so, what did y'all find about the cost to local governments of these voluntary immigration enforcement activities? Well, we found a couple of things. One is if you look at this question of complying with immigration detainers, which again are voluntary requests from ICE as opposed to something like a court order uh, or a warrant for a serious crime. Complying with these non-binding requests uh, cost Georgia's local governments an estimated $88 million over the past decade. That shakes out to about $9 million a year on average. It of course varies a little bit from year to year. Uh, as we detail in the report, but it came out at $9 million a year on average over the past decade. The second thing we found is that these uh, counties that layer on the 287G program of additional hyper-enforcement incur additional cost because they have additional responsibilities under that program that are done at the county's own expense. Precise numbers on what the 287G 
program is costing the traditionally four counties and now six counties in Georgia uh, that that have it are a little hard to come by. Uh, but the experience of Gwinnett County uh, indicates that the those costs of 287G are likely substantial. We found that in uh, Gwinnett County, uh, since that program started in 2009, that it's cost uh, an average of $1.2 million a year at least to implement during that time. Um, and so local governments, county governments, they can get reimbursed for some of this activity, correct? How, how much are uh, local governments recovering in the state? Well, that's a really good question because it's actually a common misconception of this program that uh, the misconception being that local governments are simply enforcing federal law and then that uh, the federal government through the national budget is simply re- reimbursing these expenses on the back end. But what's actually happening is that you know, there are a few of the costs that get offset, uh, you know, for something like 287G, uh, certain things like training and some of the equipment involved. But for the most part, voluntary enforcement is being done at the expense of local governments. Uh, we found that uh, Georgia's local governments as a whole only recovered an estimated 12% of the cost of complying with detainers uh, over a nine-year span starting in 2008. And then looking at Gwinnett County, at their aggressive 287G program, the local taxpayers recovered no more than 10% of the total cost of implementing that program. Uh, and these funds, which can be thought of as a reimbursement, are coming uh, from a, through a federal grant program uh, meant to offset some of these expenses. So there are some reasonable justifications for interior enforcement of immigration laws, maybe even including some deportations. Um, But it's not as if deporting people from their communities is a completely cost-free activity or or one that doesn't have any consequences. So can you describe some of the the costs or byproducts of immigration enforcement? Oh, absolutely. And I'd I'd say a, a couple of things on this point. One is that really everyone is in agreement, of course, that uh, in situations where there are individuals committing uh, serious violent crimes, uh, whatever they might be, uh, those are people who should be being uh, sort of put through the regular criminal justice process of, of, uh, you know, being arrested and if they're being tried and if they're found guilty, uh, dealt with appropriately, uh, including deportation, if that's appropriate in that case. But indiscriminate enforcement, where we're not looking solely at violent criminals uh, or repeat offenders, but at uh, people with lawful status issues, uh, you know, really regardless of the severity of criminal offense, including things like uh, rolling through stop signs and and driving without a license and jaywalking and what have you, uh, targeting and deporting those people really does carry some significant uh, socioeconomic and community harm uh, for local areas. For example, there are an estimated 226,000 children in Georgia, 82% of whom are U.S. citizens who live with at least one undocumented adult. Deporting those unauthorized um, immigrant adults in those households really has a severe effect, as you might imagine, on household income and earning potential. Uh, There's one national study that estimated a typical immigrant household where the breadwinner or parent is deported will lose uh, about 70% of household income. And so that has an impact, of course, both both on the immigrants themselves, including especially the children in those households. Uh, That can be severe and they can last for life. It also includes some spillover, you know, economic and, and 
sort of negative tax implications for local governments as well. Immigrant households have significant spending power, and they're contributing uh, state and local taxes as well. For example, in Cobb County, mixed-status households are paying an estimated $85 million a year to Georgia in state and local tax revenue. And so really no one is against uh, you know, appropriate targeted enforcement of, of people, whether they're uh, unauthorized immigrants or native-born citizens, uh, to make sure they're dealt with appropriately. But it's really these blanket indiscriminate forms of enforcement that, that do cause you know, significant uh, consequences, drawbacks for local communities. People who often advocate for uh, indiscriminate enforcement, they point to, you know, securing public safety, making sure that that's a priority. But what does the existing evidence suggest about uh, what indiscriminate enforcement does as it relates to public safety? Yeah, that's a, a very good question as well. And I'd say, what I'd say is that, you know, an important caveat is this report does not delve into a fully comprehensive review of either expert research or the experience of other states on the public safety angle. But a a cursory review of the existing evidence suggests that claims of improved public safety are highly questionable at best and may do uh, more harm than good overall. There's really a couple of reasons for this. One is that when uh, when immigrants in local communities cannot distinguish between uh, regular local police officers and ICE agents. In other words, they feel like they can't go to local law enforcement without potentially being deported. They won't do things like, or I should say they're less willing to do things uh, like offer police useful information, provide tips about potential bad apples in the community. And that chilling effect um, means that there's less opportunity for cooperation, for information sharing, uh, and a lower ability of uh, local peace officers to uh, uh, identify uh, and apprehend criminals uh, as they need to. One uh, interesting statistic on this is from a national landmark study that was done in 2011, uh, is about half of people detained under local 287G programs uh, were picked up for misdemeanors or uh, sort of minor ordinance violations like uh, speeding tickets and what have you. And so it's really a twofold issue where on one hand, uh, there's less cooperation from the immigrant community to target serious criminals. And then on the other hand, because of uh, programs like 287G and other forms of aggressive enforcement, local resources are being diverted away from serious crimes to these uh, sort of minor violations. So the one avenue where I think most people may have heard about this issue before is in this debate over sanctuary cities. Um, so how does this issue uh, sit within that that broader debate? Well, that particular term is something that is a little bit of a moving target and that there's not any one specific definition over. Um, you know, communities fall along a spectrum from the sort of most aggressive heavy enforcement like the 287G program uh, all the way to the other end of uh, you know, these jurisdictions that are sometimes called sanctuary cities who are trying to try to limit the cooperation uh, to the full extent that they're allowed to under federal law. Most jurisdictions really are going to fall somewhere in the middle and where the lines are, nobody knows for sure. But there are an increasing amount of jurisdictions nationwide who are choosing uh, to limit their cooperation of these volunteer 
disciplinary enforcement uh, mechanisms uh, out of a concern both for the well-being of the community as well as a commitment to fiscal responsibility. These are places like Houston, Texas, uh, El Paso, Colorado. These are places that terminated 287G agreements after having had them for many years. Uh, and then there's a couple of jurisdictions in Georgia, like Clark County, like Clarkston and Decatur, who have uh, chosen not to comply with these non-binding detainer requests from ICE unless they are accompanied by something uh, that is firmer and more mandatory, uh, like a warrant or a court order. Um, and as a way of wrapping up, just to to clarify, this issue or immigration generally crosses a lot of different levels of government, federal, state, and local, and and it seems to be a popular uh, topic for uh, people running for office at, at all different kinds of levels. But these decisions about whether or not to comply with voluntary uh, requests, these are decisions that are made locally, right? I would say for the most part, yes, with an important distinction. So if we're talking about city and county governments deciding whether or not to embrace these voluntary choices of uh, complying with detainer requests or uh, starting or maintaining or potentially rolling back a 287G program. Those are very much local decisions that are being made by mayors and, and city councilmen and county commissions, et cetera. There is also a debate, though, on the state level about whether to more firmly require uh, local jurisdictions to embrace these sorts of tools rather than there still being some degree of local discretion. So during the 2018 legislative session here in Georgia, for example, there was a bill, Senate Bill 452, which uh, nearly passed. It did not pass on the final day at the legislature, and it would have required what some people were calling a 287G light, um, a but uh, in it, whatever you call it, requiring a sort of hand-in-glove relationship between Georgia's local governments and immigration and customs enforcement. And so something like that could be coming back around, potentially, uh, whether it's uh, during the next year's legislative session or sometime soon thereafter. All righty. Well, Wesley Tharp, thank you so much for all this information on, on this really important issue. Yeah, Kyle, it's always my pleasure. All right. So thanks again to Wesley for joining the show and uh, telling us about local immigration enforcement and, and how much local governments are spending on that issue. Um, did y'all want to add any thoughts to to that discussion with Wesley? I did. I really just want to implore everyone that's listening. It's been to not forget that this issue is going on. It's been one of those issues that keeps sliding in and out of coverage on the media, depending on what's going on that day, especially with the president. So just keep it in the back of your mind. There are kids that are separated from their parents. There are immigration issues being handled in this country that are being handled in a way that I feel is inappropriate. And just don't forget about it. All right. Well, with that, we will move on to our second topic this week. Um, so another hot conversation going on in Georgia politics right now is this conversation around the security of our voting system and a push uh, by advocates who are concerned about election security in the state to come up with a different structure for our voting system, something that has a verifiable paper trail um, to a, to give us sort of a backstop for ensuring that elections are conducted the way that they should. Um, I I bet you both have more to say on this than I do, but but um, Megan, let's start with your uh, thoughts around this discussion and around 
these transitions that are being proposed to more secure voting systems? So I, part of my day job deals with information security. And one of the things that just baffles to me about baffles me about this entire situation is that both parties actually agree that this is a problem and we still can't get to a solution. And the other thing that might be more baffling than the fact that we can't find a solution, even though there's agreement, is the fact that the solution is, I wouldn't say a simple one, but it's born out of people not doing the job correctly in the first place. Um, there is evidence in Georgia of a cybersecurity issue caused by the misconfiguration of a server. There is other evidence of issues, again, talking about in Georgia, of a server that wasn't appropriately patched. And the patch had been available for something like two years, and it just wasn't handled. There was also a plain text file of passwords available on a misconfigured server for election officials to use to log in to the election machines and databases and things like that. And so again, that should never happen if you're following appropriate security protocols. So it's just really baffling to me that what we're saying now is because people don't do their jobs, because people don't handle information security correctly, we should go to paper ballots. Whereas I working, you know, a lot of my job in the tech sector, I think that that is the absolute opposite way we should go. Not that I'm saying that there's no place for paper ballots. I absolutely believe in auditing and the paper audit is a good option. But I don't believe that we should take steps back years and years to use paper, which, by the way, we got away from because it has its own problems. I think that there's a hybrid solution that doesn't count out tech, but is still auditable. That is where we need to figure out how we need to figure out how to make that happen. And ultimately, people who are responsible for configuring these machines, for building these machines, for configuring these servers, they need to step up and they need to do their jobs. I mean, we've got hackathons going on. DEF CON is one of the big hackathons that happens in this country. And it took a team only two hours to break into one of the voter machines. So hire some hackers. I know that companies actually hire hackers internally to test the security of their products. So it seems clear to me that if this group of hackers who they go to this conference for fun and to learn, if they can get into this machine in two hours, then this company that made the machine didn't do their due diligence. The people who misconfigured the server in Georgia didn't do their due diligence. And so we shouldn't all have to suffer with by stepping out of the future to go back to paper because people are not doing their jobs. So, Luke, how uh, this this idea that our elections could be hacked into um, has always, to me, been sort of a borderline conspiracy theory that I haven't taken seriously. And yeah, I didn't pay much attention to it prior to the 2016 election, but we've now uh, looked uh, since Trump's election at indictments that have come out that have been very detailed about Russian efforts to influence the American elections. And, you know, clearly one thing that seems to be on the table if these systems aren't secure is the possibility that um, these voting machines could be could be hacked into, totals changed, or, or other uh, interference run by not just the Russians, but by, by anybody that wants to mess with our elections. Um, you know, is this is this a realistic threat for people to be concerned about? 
I think it is a realistic threat. And the reason I do is like, we already have evidence that, um, the Russians have tried to interfere in our previous election. There's evidence. I mean, there's an article in the AJC that a Russian agent visited election websites in at least two Georgia counties. There's other evidence that, um, you know, the security of the Secretary of State's website was not very good and it was pretty easy to get into the back end of a lot of their records. And I mean, the reason why this is a security issue in my mind is just the fact that, um, I mean, as, as Megan laid out, like pretty much everyone agrees that there's a problem here. And even if nothing has happened as of yet, um, the door is, you know, there might be a door on, you know, the, the, over the, uh, data and all the election servers and machines, but it's, it's unlocked. So really all it takes is someone who really wants to get in to just open the door uh, and it won't be that difficult for them to get in. And so I think it's important for us to work on this, even if nobody was trying to uh, handle like, like, like let's, let's, let's like really, really back up. And like, even if hacking wasn't happening anywhere, that there was no reason why anyone would want to hack our elections, our current, system doesn't even allow us to have like good recounts you know like we had uh the lieutenant governor's race on the republican side that was just incredibly close a statewide race that was very very close and there really is no way to do a good recount of that like what you gonna because like right now our current system basically what you do is like you put you know, you take, you know, they take the records out of the machines and put them into a computer and run them. And a recount is them basically just like pushing the button to read that stuff again. It's not a very effective audit system. And so just for other purposes beyond hacking, it would be good in Georgia if we had uh, a more accountable, more audible system, which pretty much everyone in Georgia agrees because that uh, you know, recount situation has been a frustration. And now you add on the, the Russian hacking or anybody hacking, uh, it, it opens the door for a lot of other issues. And so I think just for people's faith in the process, it's well worth it for us to invest in updating the technology. And I mean, the last time we updated it was uh, post Bush v. Gore. So it's like, it, it's not like that. We just updated it a couple of years ago. Like that, that the tech is old. It's people have had problems unassociated with hacking. So, I mean, I just think we're overdue. Well, Kemp will at least agree with you there. He has said that he believes that the voting machines are tested, battle tested and, and secure, but that they're old and they're due for replacement. And that to me, that's just hiding behind another issue yeah i mean i i think and this is the you know my other big thought on, on this topic is that everyone in georgia at least you know most political people in georgia most legislators in georgia agree that we should change the system but i think they're being very very sloppy with their wording because i don't think anyone has been as adamant like when they say paper ballots i don't think they mean literally like there are no machines anymore and you just use paper i think that like that phrase is just sort of like single payer healthcare in the sense that like everyone says the same words but doesn't exactly agree on what that looks like and so i think um 
I think honestly, this is one of those things that like if it had been on the floor of the state house and state senate, we would have passed it. But it's one of those things that just they just kind of ran out of time and didn't have uh, enough options on the table and time to discuss it in committee uh, last session. So I, I think it's it's one of those things that unfortunately we're not going to be able to fix before the 2018 election. But come 2020, I'd be kind of surprised if we hadn't you know pushed the ball significantly further down the the court on this because um you know whoever is our next secretary of state i i am pretty sure they will want to see you know they'll want to see some change in this area and have a new system in place and that be something that they can uh, take credit for yeah i guess my concern though is that there are people out there who do fully stand behind paper like actual paper ballots um, I know that I was hearing some talk about people saying, okay, well, I'm only ever going to vote now through absentee ballots because that's like a hard copy ballot and I don't ever want to vote with a machine again. So while you may be correct in the the paper ballot phrasing, maybe an all-encompassing phrase when we're talking about politicians, there are people in Georgia who believe and are pushing for legitimate paper-only ballots. And that's a little concerning to me because, as previously stated, those have their own problems. How does the issue of voting by mail fit into this? I know this is a play. This is an issue. I think it's Oregon. I could be getting that wrong. There's a state out west that I think fully votes by mail. Is that does that present its own security risks or? Oh, is for that, sure. What are what are some of those? And, and would that be better than than what we've got now? Better than I don't know. I mean, I don't know about you, but I've definitely had things get lost in the mail, as well as if you've got somebody who's politically savvy and paying attention to the post and knows what those return returned ballots are going to look like, they could just steal them. So unless we're going to be picking those up and, you know, giving U.S. Postal Service men and women, you know, some way to arm themselves and prevent things from being stolen, then... You know, I don't I don't know. And of course, I don't actually recommend that we arm our, you know, the U.S. Post. I actually think that's really outlandish. I'm just, you know, making a point that that having the paper ballots actually means that they can get stolen or compromised in other ways or just never make it to begin with just due to human error that was negligent, not not anything malicious. So should we have concerns about the 2018 elections and I mean is there is there anything that we can really do about that absent either either a big federal investment in overhauling these electoral systems before the midterms or or states stepping in themselves I I might be wrong about this but I think it's uh, I mean at this point we're it's it's July 31st I mean tomorrow is the first day of August even if, like tomorrow, Donald Trump went on TV and said, we are going to have a completely overhauled voting system in the United States and I'm going to pay for it personally, <laughs> you know, or, or like, I'm going to, like, this is my number one thing that I'm going to push. And Republicans and Democrats came together and was like, hell yeah, this is a great idea. I mean, I just don't even know if it's practical to get, like, agree on a new system, get that new system in place. In all 50 states because like it's a it's a state issue how you handle elections is under state jurisdiction and so and, and you know same scenario even if 
Governor Deal called a special session tomorrow and everyone was, you know, I don't know how much notice you have to have for a special session, but, you know, just like even if they got in there and passed a bill sometime this month that was effective immediately and they already agreed on the system, I just don't think it could be implemented in time. Uh, what we, so we're going to, you know, we're going to be using those same machines in November. That's pretty assured to me. What you, we can see, and I hope we see is that the, uh, watchdog groups and the media in Georgia watch Brian Kemp's office very, very closely. And now that he's running for governor, I think that's more likely to happen because they have had significant breaches already like they have a history of it and what's worse for me and i you know i've said this before because this is a difficult time in technology like there's no question i mean facebook is a company that has millions of dollars they have just thousands of people hundreds of thousands probably that work for them i don't know how many people work for facebook but a lot and like they are on the cutting edge of a lot of this technology and like just today they had to ban a bunch of accounts for uh, you know, promoting propaganda and like they're trying to figure this out and they're at the top in their fields. And, you know, no offense to the Secretary of State's office, but like this is not like the main reason a lot of those people are there. A lot of people that work there are, um, you know, political hires and that's typical in any political office. And, you know, Brian Kemp is is not a tech guy. That is not why he's there. He ran for that office um, you know, after being appointed to it. And, you know, it, it's sort of the, you know, the same thing even with like Robert Mueller when he was appointed as FBI director, he thought he was going to be fighting gangs and drugs. And then, you know, a week after he got appointed, 9-11 happened and his entire focus shifted to terrorism. So similarly speaking, like, this is a tough time to be dealing with all this hacking issues because it's a pretty new thing. And nobody would have really blamed Brian Kemp if he had been like, this is a new thing, we could use federal help on this, that we're a state that were being, you know, hacked by foreign governments. This is something that federal assistance would be useful in. But he's taken the exact opposite approach. And I think that's important both to the election security question and also the question of like how Brian Kemp would be as governor. Because when they've faced controversy about how they have handled hacking and breach issues, whether it's like internal problems with their procedures or outside threats, they basically stonewalled and said that like there's not a problem and we don't need help and we're on top of it and like get off our case. And I don't think that is something that inspires a whole hell of a lot of confidence. And so I'm hoping that um, going forward, uh, we see a lot more transparency from their office, whether it is um, willing transparency and that they have uh, better, you know, discussion about what's going on in their office or what I think is more likely to happen, uh, forced transparency by journalists and activists filing FOIA requests and getting all the information they can out of those offices about what's happening. Well, and this is further compounded, too, by the fact that Georgia has, at least of late under our current leadership, refused to invest money in things that need it. You know, tech security costs big bucks. There is a reason that people pay hackers to be on their staff and pay people to have expertise and um, pay for people to have all of these certifications and all these things like that because it's a big deal and it's a lot to know and it's a lot to be able to manage. And as a state, especially since we're all like, no, don't raise taxes, don't spend money where we don't need it, you know, things cost money. And this is one of the places where we need to be spending it and we're not. 
do y'all have any thoughts on whether or not the states, like whether or not we should have such dispersed responsibility for running elections between states sort of overseeing the elections within their states and counties do a lot of the administration they get some federal support, but there's no sort of unified nationwide system. Do y'all think that that should be different at all? I, I'm pro a dispersed system because that is actually what makes it so, like difficult to hack <laughs> where there's not a one-stop shop for like all the voting information. And the fact that counties run a lot of these processes is actually something that keeps it safer uh, because it, it makes it a lot more difficult for um, hackers to handle it because they're you know instead of having 50 targets uh you know as in the 50 states they have you know in georgia alone they have 159 targets and so on on that front until there's a better understanding of uh, how to secure these systems it being dispersed i think is a benefit well that can also turn around and bite you though because it's easy to select counties and states that are more gerrymandered or have, um, you know, closer elections or are easier to fudge. It's easier to fudge the data and to hide it. And then also each county, not every county has a lot of resources. And so again, if every county is managing it, you have certain counties that are going to have a lot of security in place and it's going to be really well done. And then you'll have the next county over be, you know, like their IT person was new when they implemented it and was busy getting other more pressing things up and running. And, you know, security for the elections was on the back burner and rightly so because of the other pressing things. But, you know, I, I agree with you that having it more dispersed is potentially better, but it would be potentially better if these counties had the support that they needed, at least the funding and at least the manpower, like they got to do with what they wanted or what they needed to do individually for what works for them. But they still need some kind of support to make sure that they have resources in place to get these things secured properly. Yeah, I have some tension on this issue between the security aspects of it and the the different decisions that states can make on regulations and eligibility around voting. I think you know, really, some of a lot of the eligibility procedures seem like they should be under a more unified federal approach because you, I mean, it's it's just plainly clear in case after case after case that right now those tools are ripe for being used by political parties to help shape their own electorate. Um, you know, it, it starts with, with gerrymandering and how districts are drawn, but it goes all the way down to how states manage their voter roles, including how they remove people who have died or moved out and the avenues there that they uh, seem to be pursuing more than previously in terms of trying to advantage one party or another in um, just some of the technical nuts and bolts of nuts and bolts of how voting is done. Um, so, you know, it, it does seem like that's an issue that we have a lot of work to do. Um, and it seems like one that should be bipartisan and should be easy for the parties to come together on, but there really don't seem to be that many of those issues anymore. Yeah. Last thing I'd say about this is, um, at this moment, I think Georgia is a positive story on this issue. Uh, basically the only person that's denying how big the problem is, is Brian Kemp. I, I think even if he gets elected governor, I don't 
think he'll continue to uh, come out against it in such a way just because I think for whatever reason, he's probably viewing it as a political vulnerability to, you know, claim that his office was overwhelmed by cybersecurity threats. But once he's elected governor, he might not care as much. And and it's a lot of incentive for him to get it right, too, because if he could be elected governor, but it his election looks fishy. I mean, that's his own position that that may be called into question. Right. I agree with that as well. And then even if uh, he wins and tries to push back on it, I think there is enough bipartisan support in Georgia just to change the system, just so it can be audited, just so like the recount issue can be handled. Because again, so many, so many people are pissed off about that in politics. So many elected officials who've had close races are just super annoyed that like there's no good system to handle that. That I think just by effect of having that smaller conversation these other conversations will open up and will come to a better solution because if uh georgia you know invests in a new system i think we'll want to make sure that we don't pay a bunch of money and then get a system that's super easily hackable maybe i'm being um a little bit overly optimistic but just from the tone of the conversation that i've heard it's there's a lot less fake news uh, you know types on this issue and like most people are pretty dissatisfied with how our current election system works in Georgia and would like to see improvements. And so I think, um, I think we're going to see some progress. It just might take a, you know, it might take till next cycle, but I think we'll see some progress. I hope. Yes. For all my piss and vinegar, I agree <laughs> with you there. <laughs> yeah. Cause I mean, it, like you said, Kyle, it's actually bipartisan. Like this is something that like both Republicans and Democrats complain about. And so on that front, I think, uh, there'll be some fighting over how we handle it, but I think that will just, you know, mostly be based off of, uh, you know, how much it'll cost rather than should we do it at all or not. Well, with that, let's move on to our final topic for today's episode. Um, so let's dive into some of the congressional runoffs and, and other runoffs in the state on the Democratic side. Um, if you missed our discussion of the Republican runoffs, um, I had that with Jessica Salaji of allongeorgia.com on last week's episode. So scroll up in your feed and check that out. But let's focus in on the Democrats here. So in the 6th Congressional District, Lucy McBath defeated Kevin Abel, and so she moves on in that race to face Karen Handel in the 6th District in the fall. And in the 7th, Carolyn Bordeaux, a Georgia State professor, she defeated David Kim in that race. She's going to head on to face Rick Woodall in the fall. Um, Rob Woodall. Rob Woodall. Who's Rick Woodall? Uh, some person you just make up. All right. Well, I'd like to meet he, him. He's the he, he's uh, a nice guy. The representative of our 14th district. <laughs> yes, the infamous. Uh, the you know after census though we might have a 14th district. So we might have one. Just an editor's note: we do have 14 districts. We may get our 15th with the next census. We also may get a new corrections guy for me with the next census. Um, but for the districts we have now, um, Lucy McBath and Carolyn Bordeaux are going to be the Democratic candidates for those seats. Um, so what were y'all's takeaways from uh, the conclusion of these two races? Is there anything specific you're looking at as these uh, elections head to the fall? I am just so excited about the girl power that I'm seeing on this ballot. Um, I, I might be fangirling a little bit by a lot of the women, especially the women of color that have made it through. Um, to the general election. I am just beyond pumped. 
It's well-deserved. You know, for, for Democratic voters, if you live in the 6th or 7th district, you're going to have a ticket that has Stacey Abrams at the top, Sarah Riggs-Amico for lieutenant governor, um, and then either Carolyn Bordeaux or Lucy McBath to vote for. And then there's a lot of talented women, um, including my good friend Aisha Yacoub, who's running in, I forget her house. House District, district 97, I think. 97. House District 45 also has a woman of color, Essence Johnson. Um, so, so there's a lot of, a lot of women on your ballot to vote for this time around. And it really is, um, you know, an example of, of women stepping up and wanting to change the politics that they see in, in the wake of Trump's election. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty excited about that too. I, you know, I really was happy with our ticket in, uh, 2014 because it was one of the most, uh, diverse tickets at the top that we had and that, you know, there was uh, Michelle Nung, you know, we had a woman and we had Jason Carter, who's not diverse, but still great. And then we had uh, Connie Stokes running for lieutenant governor. Uh, and so I was happy about that and thought that was the best we could do. I'm happy that that has been proven way wrong. And now we have a really diverse ticket and a really progressive ticket. And, uh, re- you know, it, it, it's good to see that, um, George is really stepping up and nominating some exciting candidates. I think we, you know, we, we took the safe route in 2014 and, you know, we know how that worked out. Um, but I think we're taking a bolder stance this time around. And I think that will probably pay off in, in some way. So I'm excited to see that. And I'm excited also to see that it's not just at the top of the ticket. It's all the way down and that we have great candidates uh, everywhere because, you know, back in 2014, I didn't have a state house candidate. I didn't have a state Senate candidate to vote for. I did have a congressional candidate, but, uh, this time I have someone to vote for in every position. And so I'm you know, a Democrat to vote for rather. And I'm very excited about that. Um, so looking forward to the fall and, and kind of backing out into, to a national view of this, Um, The Cook Political Report recently moved 17 of their projections on races in the House, and they all moved in the Democratic direction. So that includes some races that were toss-ups that are now lean Democrat, some races that were solidly Republican that are now going to only lean Republican and look like potential stretch pickup opportunities for the Democrats. Um, How are y'all feeling about how these elections are going to go nationwide in the fall. Should should Democrats be excited about November? Optimistically. Uh, or, or not optimistic. Cautiously optimistic. I will get the words out correctly eventually. Um, yes, cautiously optimistic, I think, is the kind of the catchphrase for this election. Uh, you know, we were a little too optimistic in 2016 and all of a sudden had the rug pulled out from under us with the Trump election. And so I think everyone's a little bit burned and a little bit worried, but I also think that the numbers are trending more in our favor as Democrats and that there is definite room for optimism. And if I think that if nothing else, we will make strides to a more equal footing among the parties rather than a uh, like, rather than such a skewed representation. 
I'm biased, but I think Democrats should always be excited about elections because elections are great and they're so much fun. Uh, so on that front, even if we were going to get our asses kicked, we should we should be excited uh, for for the fun of elections. But now, more seriously, um, yeah, I think I think we have a good chance. And really, I you know I know you're you're Congress is obsessed, Kyle, because you're in D.C. Um, but I am excited because of all the amazing state house candidates that we have and i am excited by the work i'm seeing that they're doing and uh you know we mentioned aisha yakub and she's you know outraised her republican opponent and i'm seeing that uh you know throughout the state that a lot of the democrats are outraising and outworking uh their opponents and so even if we lose the governor's race or uh, you know lose all the other statewide races which i don't think is uh you know a determined uh, outcome, and I think it's very possible we'll win. But even if we do lose, we're definitely going to make some significant gains in the state house, and maybe pick up a couple seats in the state senate. And I think, as like that being the baseline, is a pretty exciting thing because um, there there's a lot of good that just having more Democrats elected in the state of Georgia will do. Because we haven't been taken seriously uh, in the state as for a long time, and so if there's more Democrats uh, elected and there's more Democrats representing people in Georgia, then we're able to build up the party brand and get the, the message out there, which I think is really important because most Georgians don't really understand what the Democratic Party of Georgia is and what it stands for, and so just actually having some people who uh, have progressive values and can articulate them, uh, maybe with a little bit more of a Southern draw, I think will uh, uh, help the, the um, values that we care about actually get articulated um, into to the country, uh, to the state and get more Democrats elected in, in later elections. I agree. I think the other thing that's key about, you know, having a full slate of candidates this time around and, and having more women and people of color step up to run is that a lot of them won't win this cycle because it's hard to win your first election. Um, but it, it gives confidence to a lot of people that they can participate in this political process in a way that, that I don't think, you know, has been widespread among Democrats and progressives in Georgia in the last maybe 10 years or so. Um, we a few weeks ago, we spoke with Don Johnson, who's uh, taking on Frank Ginn in a uh, state Senate seat out in the Athens Clark County area. And that's a district that seems to be you can correct me if I'm wrong, Luke, but that's one that's going to be a real uphill climb for her. It seems to be drawn to really favor Republicans. Um, but her boldly progressive message is one that's going to it's going to be in the media, in the local media, in that area. There's somebody going to be standing up uh, to make these points and, and to question Frank Ginn and the decisions that he and Republicans have made in the legislature. And that is all a part of the process uh, for a party that's looking to kind of rebuild its power in the state. That's all a part of the process of of going through and actually rebuilding that power brick by brick. Um you know, that in itself is is a pretty good sign, like the likes of which we haven't seen in quite a while. Yeah. And, you know, we'll definitely talk about this later when uh, we get a little closer to Election Day. But the I, I, t- I typically don't mention the state Senate, which is with as much enthusiasm as the state house, just because it has been 
very successfully gerrymandered, unfortunately. And so there's a couple pickup opportunities there, but most of the seats that aren't already held by Democrats are are pretty strongly Republican. But we definitely shouldn't give up on that because, uh, I mean, with some of the results that we've seen from special elections, it wouldn't be completely impossible for us to pick up some seats like that seat that Frank Ginn currently holds. And so um, what I'm excited to see and what I think is the real opportunity that we have here in Georgia is that everyone is running as if they could win and that it's possible for them to win and that they, they have not seeded the race and they aren't acting like they're going to win. They're all running as if they, they could win. And I think that's really what uh, will take us to victory in November is that, um, everyone's working hard and uh, is doing the blocking and tackling of campaigning of knocking on doors and raising money and making phone calls that are so important. And so if, if a a big wave does come, then we'll be able to take advantage of it. I think that what you're just talking about is definitely heartening, especially in the kind of grassroots efforts that I'm seeing to support candidates. We're seeing a whole lot of first-time volunteers get out there and a whole lot of first-time campaign staffers and things like that just because they're ready to kind of grab life by the horns, if you will, and say, okay, well, I see other people doing this and I feel like I've got kind of an army at my back with the Democratic Party really stepping up and really speaking up. So let's go get them. Um, so I know there were a few other races that caught y'all's eye that, that y'all wanted to hit on too. Yeah. So I actually had two pretty major disappointments on my ballot that I was I was just really bummed about. Fannie Willis ran for Fifth Superior Court District Atlanta Circuit. She lost to Kevin Farmer and one of the things that I was so encouraged by this election cycle was seeing how many women were running, especially women of color. Um, and I feel like we really lost an opportunity with Fannie Willis uh, losing the election to have a, a judge in place that actually really understands Atlanta and just because of, you know, racial issues and background and things like that. And I'm just super bummed that she lost. And then there was also the election for Georgia school superintendent. And Sid Chapman was my vote on that one. And again, I'm really bummed. He was the one that had actual classroom experience for K-12, to which I think is so crucial, especially with where Georgia is with education, with charter schools and public schools and trying to figure out how to best support education for not just our older students with the HOPE scholarship, but for our younger students as well. And I just think that he would have been the great a great man for the job, and he did not make it through. Yeah, I think I think that raises the importance of of paying attention to those elections all the way down the ballot. Um, you know, one of one of the most important uh, seats that I've seen that you can vote for that that I don't think has been paid attention to a lot, really, really anywhere is is your local prosecutors. Some of those are up for election in some places, and they, you know, we talk a lot about criminal justice reform in in the legislature, both in in Georgia and in Congress. Um, and some of the action that's that's been done there, but but a lot of the sort of boots on the ground, so to speak, about running criminal justice are are prosecutors, and and so you know having prosecutors that have a more progressive vision um, and have in kind of stray away from the the tough on crime vi- vision that has kind of dominated a position like that is really key. 
Um, you know, and these races are the same in terms of, uh, you know, the, the necessity to pay attention to these and, and to understand the ways in which all of these positions up and down the ballot play key policy roles, um, whether it's changes in, in criminal, in the criminal justice system or changes in education reform. Um, all of these issues have a lot of players that influence them in our politics. And so you can, you can do a lot to influence those issues by even just voting all the way down the ballot. Vote Democrat all the way down the ballot. It's, it is, has been done by Republicans for years. And as Democrats, it's something that we have to start doing. I'm just, uh, I'm just going to put out my, my prayer (laughs) to the people of Georgia that we have an actual substantive campaign that we talk about issues and not, personality defects and stuff i i i just i'm hopeful but not not expecting that i don't know i thought all elections were decided by who had the biggest truck oh maybe (laughs) in georgia i i would watch a monster truck fight between brian kemp and stacy abrams though Uh, that would be damn good television i would i would pay money to see that you know what you're right all right. Well, if we find out the voting machines are all screwed up, that's how we're going to settle this thing. Like January 1st in the Mercedes Benz, they're going to drive monster trucks until, I don't know, somebody emerges alive, I guess. Um, all right. <laughs> well, on that note, I, I think we'll leave that one there for this week. Um, so we will get out of here and we will talk to y'all next week. Goodbye. Bye. That's our show for the week. If you like what you heard, share the show with a friend and go over to iTunes and give us a rating or a review. It really helps other people find our show. We'll be back with another episode of Peach Pod next week. Until then, take care, y'all.